Hello and welcome to this podcast from Faber. My name is George Miller, and my guest in this program is Professor of Evolutionary Anthropology at Oxford University, Robin Dunbar. Robin is perhaps best known for coming up with the idea of Dunbar's number, which is 150, the number of simultaneous meaningful human relationships we're cognitively equipped to cope with. I spoke to Robin about this and other ideas in his previous book, How Many Friends Does One Person Need?, in Faber Podcast 17, which you can find by clicking on the podcast tab on the homepage at faber.co.uk. The subject of this podcast is Robin's most recent book, The Science of Love and Betrayal, which tackles some of the most fundamental questions of human behaviour, including why do we as a species pair bond when few other mammal species do? What are the evolutionary advantages of monogamy over promiscuity on a species-wide basis? And how do we pair bond? What cues and clues do we respond to when we're on the lookout for a mate? And why is a good sense of humour so often mentioned in personal ads? And what about kissing? In short, all of human life is here, and many of the answers are guaranteed to surprise you. When I met Robin at his office in Oxford recently, I began by asking him what in retrospect seems a rather comical question. How did he first become interested in human mating strategies? Mating strategies are kind of core bread and butter work in evolutionary biology. And I actually came into this from evolutionary biology, really. And so we were working on, at that time, on primate behaviour. And one of the central problems in trying to understand the evolution of behaviour has to do with, you know, what is it that allows some individuals to produce more offspring than others? And naturally out of that flows the question of, well, you know, you should choose your mating partners wisely in order to make sure you get the best mix of genes with yours. And it then raises the whole question of different kinds of mating systems. Why are some species of primates in particular, but mammals in general, birds even, monogamous, whereas others are kind of promiscuous? And, you know, these... These problems through the 70s and 80s and into the 90s, really, were sort of very much core bread and butter work in in evolutionary biology. And it just led naturally on to doing the same kinds of things in humans for us, anyway. And it has to be said that in the mammalian world, promiscuity certainly seems to have the upper hand over monogamy. Yes. This is mainly the consequence of the fact that... um, Mammals opted for internal gestation followed by lactation. That makes it very difficult for the males to do very much because there isn't much in the form of uh, parental investment that they can engage in, unlike the birds where you know the males can ferry back and forth food just as easily as the females can or they can sit on the eggs just as easily as the females can. That's not, of course, to say that despite the fact that something like 90% of bird species have monogamous mating systems and rearing systems. You get an awful lot of promiscuity on the side. And what about when it comes to the great apes? How do they differ from, from human behaviour? Well, the great apes are very variable. Well, if we broaden the picture a little bit and include the gibbons, the lesser apes, the gibbons are kind of one of the archetypally monogamous primate species. And they, if you like, are the earliest branch of the apes that that sort of separated off. Uh, Among the great apes themselves, predominantly, it's some form of promiscuous or polygamous mating system where high-ranking males, the thugs, if you like, 
are able to monopolize reproductive females and, and to mate with them and sire their, their offspring. The sort of exception, half exception to that are gorillas, really. They, they have these sort of harem-based groups, small harem-based groups with a sort of central breeding male and you know, two, three or four females latched onto him. And that's a sort of a, a living family group, if you like. And I suppose the, the interesting thing about primatology in the context of, of human behaviour is that it shows the range of possibilities and also the factors which come into play in a particular system working for a particular species. Mating systems are, it's true that mating systems are very variable among the apes in that sense. They're, they're always also quite sensitive to ecological circumstances. So even within any of the great apes, it can vary quite a bit. And in that sense, we are, if you like, just a standard great ape, but just more flexible. So we actually sort of cover the entire range, I guess, of mating systems that you see in great apes, as or in apes as a whole, if you include the, the, the gibbons and their more bonded monogamy, as it were. But in the end, a lot of this is, is still built around the same inner core of a bonded relationship, a pair-bonded relationship between a male and a, a female. Now, you might have several females bonded to one male. You might even have several males bonded to one female, as you do in polyandrous societies in humans, Tibetans being an example. But you also clearly get individual, sort of more monogamous-like groups. And this is just what we do, really. I suppose what it does, though, is it issues a bit of a a challenge to notions of, of romantic love as a, as a human ideal and sort of grounds it in rather more basic biological circumstances? I think the answer to that is actually yes and no. In a sense, whatever romantic love really is, clearly it's, it's a consequence of some physiology going on in our brains, as it were. And in that sense, that bondedness probably is quite widespread and certainly occurs among the other apes for sure. On the other hand, it is, does look to me as though the intensity of this kind of um, uh, falling in love component that we have is particularly intense in humans. It's, it, you don't see anything quite as kind of emotionally engaged in any of the other species, I don't think. And it's not just the product of a, a Western individualist, capitalistic kind of phenomenon. It's general. The anthropological evidence, I think, shows quite clearly that it's a universal. Anthropologists have always claimed that it isn't, and it's a kind of invention of the Mills and Boone industry, if you like. But I think it is just isn't true. I think the, the, the mistake, in a sense, is to confuse the fact that not everybody falls in love and not everybody marries for the sake of love in any culture, ours as much as anybody else's. I mean, people through, throughout history and all around the world have paired up together for purely naked economic reasons, uh, and not least our uh, 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 great and good uh, monarchs of the past, as it were, uh, who you know, sort of uh, exchanged uh, daughters and sons and as tokens of their sort of fealty to each other. So, you know, these things are, are, are clearly, they aren't universal in the sense that everybody has to do it. Sometimes some people clearly experience it in a more intense way than others. Uh, but they are universal in the sense that 
the, as far as I know, is almost no culture uh, around the world that doesn't exhibit some form of this sort of complex sense of longing and, and, and so on. Now, before we get to the stage of actually falling in love, clearly we are a fair amount of the time on the lookout. We are, we are alert. Our senses are attuned to the possibility. And I wondered if you could you talk about quick and dirty cues in the book rather than being analytical about it. Can you tell me some of the quick and dirty cues that, that humans are on the lookout for in, in prospecting for a potential mate? Well, the issue in mate choice really comes down at the biological level to making sure that your prospective mate that you pair up with has both, the, on the one hand, the quality of genes to mix with yours to produce sparklingly good offspring. Uh, otherwise, you know, biologically, this is a complete dead end. But secondly, because particularly in humans, it's not just about producing offspring, you know, by uh, mating, as it were, but also rearing the little things into functional adults who will go on in turn and um, uh, reproduce in, in, in due course. So famously, uh, evolution is interested in grandchildren, not in children. You see. So trying to get this sort of balance between these two sides of the story, uh, your ability and willingness to invest in rearing offspring on the one hand, and uh, the more naked quality of the genes you have on offer on the other, has led to all this sort of complex array of cues we use. I mean, they, they are very, very diverse. They're m more diverse in the case of women than they are in the case of men. men. Men seem generally to be driven by one thing and one thing only, and that is essentially cues of fertility. And cues of fertility are reflected partly in age, uh, a woman's age, partly in her physical attractiveness. For women, because it's a much more complex decision and the rearing component looms much larger, all sorts of cues about the status and wealth of a prospective male. In other words, what they have to offer on the table uh, to the costs of rearing, and they have, costs of rearing have become particularly expensive in, in modern times for us because of all these Nike shoes and all the rest of stuff that has to be bought, uh, and the fact that we have to pay for, uh, for our children's education way on into their 20s these days. Uh, this whole process of placing your children, which is what it's all about, placing them in the adult world, has just become enormously expensive. So being able to provide at least your share of the goods is a, is a highly uh, desirable trait to be able to see. So these could be reflected in the size of the car you have, how generous you are, and so on. Equally, uh, how um, since it is a very long-term investment, the rearing of children, you need to be sure that the, this one is going to stay around long enough to do the job. So you want to be looking, no doubt, for cues of reliability and the fact that they, they will invest in your offspring and not run off as somebody else's and, and all these kind of things. So this is a very complex series of things. And then on the pure genes side, there are lots of kind of weird and wonderful markers of, of gene quality, um, things like dancing ability, uh, things like the lengths of your fingers and, and so on, or the relative lengths of your fingers, which just are natural biological developmental markers of how good your genes, your own set of genes, are at producing this sort of perfect body, as it were. And symmetry is an interesting one. Tell me how 
finely attuned we are to detecting symmetry and what that betokens. Symmetry is a very weird pro process, really. It was first picked up in birds, and particularly in birds that have long tails, so forked tails like, like uh, uh, swallows and so on. What it seems to bear back to is the gene's ability to withstand the insults of everyday life during the process of development to still produce this perfect organism. So, you know, if, if your genes aren't quite on target, they'll get derailed as a result of illnesses or periods of food shortage or whatever it is. So the fact that you end up as an adult with a completely symmetrical body is an indicator that your genes have been able to cope with these kind of insults and therefore in biological terms are of top quality as you might think. But it's turned out that humans are, uh, are incredibly sensitive to this kind of symmetry as well. We can pick it up just in things like the, well, the, the various cues that have been used uh, to measure this are things like the length, relative lengths of the left and right ears, for example, or the relative length, lengths of fingers on left and right hands or the relative lengths of, of feet. It's almost any part of the body that's duplicated, you can pick up a signature of this but sometimes they're unbelievably subtle. I mean, we're talking about millimeters of difference here at the most, uh, but people seem to be incredibly well attuned to noticing these just in static uh, pictures, as it were. But of course, a lot of them also get reflected in movement patterns. So our ability to dance well is affected by how symmetrical our bodies are, it seems. So just watching somebody dance People in general, women in particular, can pick up very, very good cues as to how symmetrical they in fact are, that person is. So we may think we chose a partner because we had the same sense of humour and liked French movies, but in fact all sorts of other things are going on and all sorts of other senses are engaged, like smell and taste. Well, uh, the thing about mate choice is it's just unbelievably complicated uh, and that's why there are so many components to it. The, I suppose the bottom line really is that particularly for the females among mammals, and therefore women in the case of humans, are making so complex decisions in which they're trying to balance off one benefit against another. So, you know, famously in, in, in the biological world, there's no, uh, no such thing as a free lunch. Everything has a cost to it. You can never find perfection. And therefore, you have to make do with what biologists would refer to as the best of a bad job at the best of times. So, you know, if you're trying to balance the quality of genes against uh, the size of the um, wage packet or the willingness to um, engage in, in sort of facilitating the pair bond and keeping the home going and, and, and rearing the offspring and so on, you know, there alone you've got three different criteria you're trying to satisfy and, and you simply won't get all of them right in any one individual. And if there is such an individual, everybody will be after him or her. So whether you get that individual or have to settle for something less good, you know, is simply a function of the fact that we're in a market. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that analogy, maybe it's not an analogy, maybe it's a, a reality of the marketplace and playing your hand as cleverly as possible and also trying to work out what someone else's hand is, is something which I guess we see in a written form in the, um, the small ads, the personal ads, isn't it? Lonely Hearts ads actually provide a perfect sort of example of, of how this is played out because 
what they provide you with is a sort of little vignette of what the advertiser would like in the ideal mate and what they have to offer. And you can see this sort of poker game being played there because you, you know, everybody has a sort of basic understanding of the rules of the marketplace just from having lived, as it were. You know, this is the experience in the sand, sand pit of life. So you come into that sort of uh, situation with a sort of general uh, picture of what's on offer and, and, and what, how you might stand. And, and you can see these sort of being played out there you know, sort of by the bids that people make and how they tone their bids down if they don't think their hand is so good. I was, um, I guess, somewhat <coughs> amused to see that you say that most people and most ages are fairly realistic about where they stand, apart from men in their mid-40s. And as I sort of hurtle into my mid-40s, I'm interested to know, is that because their stock plummets? Because you said they're kind of at their peak of attractiveness in their early 40s. So what, what is it that happens and why do they so badly overvalue themselves? It's just slow learning. <laughs> I think the point is that in the case of males in particular, you have a, 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 a trade-off really between the fact that as you get older, so your wealth and status is, increases typically uh, and you, 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 that side of it becomes more attractive or advantageous. But at the same time, if you like, your risk of dying or deserting is also increasing. So the two of these are, are sort of traded against each other and it causes women's preference for males to have this sort of humped shape over age so their preference sort of peaks in males about 40 where these two criteria trade off and then either side of that you're falling away and so males coming into their mid-40s who had whatever it is 20-30 years of experience of increasing attractiveness and uh, they I guess simply assume the world will carry on getting better but uh, they hit that point of downturn uh, it takes them it, or seems to take them at least a few years to figure out that actually <laughs> um, women's preferences have changed and then eventually you know certainly by the time they're 50 they've they're back to back on track again that's the sports car and the um, the extra jogging now what about prom- promiscuity that's clearly something which is found in all human societies but what determines the level of promiscuity because clearly there are some societies in which it's very severely sanctioned in, especially for women but also for men and there are others where opportunity perhaps again creates um, behavior i think the short answer is you, what you have is as often as the case is biology you have a compromise here so it's possible to have a strictly monogamous mating and rearing system uh, as indeed some animals do but in evolutionary terms on the whole a strictly monogamous mating system isn't hugely advantageous to you in other words you can always do a little bit better than the person next door by mixing a monogamous and or a pair bonded and and a promiscuous a more promiscuous mating system so right the way through the whole course of mammalian evolution you see these two sort of really competing with each other and what we humans do is simply pretty much sort of standard mammalian behavior if you like in these terms so yes we have these very strongly bonded monogamous relationships there's a moot question as to whether these are ever lifelong in any in any case uh, given case or not or are they sort of, you know, are we really serial monogamous uh, 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 at root? 
but written on overriding that there's clearly a, a division in both sexes it seems between people who are more naturally more monogamous and people who are naturally more uh, promiscuous and that seems in turn to be a consequence of the availability of potential mating partners in the market and the sense that the mating market there means that you may be able to get some gain, some additional biological evolutionary gain through extra uh, pair matings or through uh, multiple matings with, with several males or females as the case may be. In human terms, uh, these tend to be associated with, in women's case, with obtaining better quality genes to uh, fertilize their offspring than the ones on offer from their partner, as it were, with whom they will stick, but, you know, sort of buy out on the market the extra quality genes that, that they might want to go with. And in males' terms, uh, simply the fact that the best way of ramping up your evolutionary contribution, your genetic fitness for any mammal, uh, male mammal, is to mate with lots of females. But again, this is a kind of trade-off because where you have a system which inevitably is built around by parental care, both parents are needed to kind of help rear the offspring, at least in some sense, then you can't have a system which is wholly promiscuous and you can't, you know, sort of... So you end up with this kind of tension, if you like. I was intrigued that you say there's research which shows that women show a preference for the sort of big game hunting, rock climbing sort of man at a particular point in their fertility cycle, i.e. when they can conceive. But at other points in that cycle, they would prefer the sort of more nurturing, sort of feminine-sided man. This is a very well-established principle that's emerged in the last, really, couple of decades, really, from work on human mating behaviour. Uh, that um, and, and this... You know, women sort of have this, um, seem to have this uh, attraction towards high-risk-taking males because high-risk-taking is a cue, really, of how good your genes are. In other words, you know, you can get out there and take the world on and still survive. And this is one of the reasons why competitive racing is so common among te late teenage boys. And basically, this is the same story. They're putting themselves on the line. You know, it's a, a, a huge, great game of chicken there. Uh, and those who really can cut the ice are the ones that survive and, uh, and so on. So it's a very, very, you know, there is no cheating. You can't cheat, cheat on that because uh, if you get it wrong, there are heavy penalties. And that's one of the reasons why you have so much um, mortality among young uh, teenage boys, you know, driving too fast or, you know, shooting each other, etc, etc, etc. So you have this sense in which uh, ma males who can put themselves on the line like that demonstrate that they have good quality genes. That makes them attractive to women. It particularly does so at the time of um, ovulation, so at the point at which they can conceive. And this is one of those cases where it seems that when women engage in what are known as extra pair copulations with, with, a, with a lover. That lover is almost always, of, in that sort of sense, higher quality than their current partner. And their current partner, whom they prefer, if you like, around the rest of the uh, menstrual cycle and, uh, and outside the menstrual cycle uh, itself, 
tends to be of a more nurturing, feminine kind of male. So again, you have, you know, this is just another case of this sort of built-in sort of tension into the whole system where the system itself is sort of driving the production of two different, if you like, two different kinds of males or two different kinds of females as a result of trying to tra trade off between these different benefits, really. Now, you've been talking about all these very subtle signs that we tune into without even being aware of it. So what happens when we go online and we, we suddenly lose all those clues and signals? Are we completely at sea? I think the, the problem with the online world, and this everybody, I think, appreciates this, is that you simply don't know who's out there. You're not getting the kind of facial cues that allow you to pick up an awful lot of information about the reliability and trustworthiness and so on of the person you're talking to. And you can see them face to face or even in a video uh, uh, context, you know, on something like Skype. If it's on sort of written, uh, typed online sort of media, like, you know, sort of social networking sites or, or, or chat rooms, you simply don't know who that person is. Uh, and the, at the best of times, that, that, that's, that creates its own problems you know, sort of in terms of general human social interactions, but it leaves us absolutely um, uh, naked, really, in terms of romantic relationships, precisely because when we fall in love with somebody, we fall in love with a figment of our, of our own imagination. We create this sense of how wonderful this person is, and that's a very important part of the process of uh, falling in love and creating a relationship, and it, you know, it takes a long, fairly long time to... Uh, decay as it were. Where this becomes a real problem, because we're susceptible to doing this, when you're doing it online and all you have is a few typed words, uh, what you do is you create this image of this person out there and once you've got over that little hump where you've decided yes this is it and you've made that decision, nothing on earth will persuade you that any cues that come in saying don't touch this one or you just ignore it and you won't, won't even listen to good advice. Is a similar dynamic at work in the love of God or the love of Jesus or love of, of Virgin Mary? You're, you're, you have a sort of, not exactly a blank canvas, but you're able to project your ideal onto them. This is, it's, this is a really curious thing, actually, is how close the resemblance of sort of romantic relationships and the feelings and so on that people seem to have in these contexts with the same kinds of feelings they seem to have with respect to, uh, you know, people like God or Jesus or Mary or, or, or whoever it may be. Um, it, it seems as though, you know, we have this capacity to fall in, fall in love or become very attached to, if you like, a virtual creation of our own minds. You know, sometimes that can be a real person out there, beyond the haze of the <laughs> imagined uh, effect, as it were, that we have in our minds, and sometimes not. Um, uh, you know, or at least it. You know, okay, Jesus and Mary uh, existed once, uh, but um, they certainly don't now. And you, you know, invent what you like, really, and you you place all your ideal and perfect um, traits that you would ma imagine in the perfect romantic partner, the perfect mother figure, father figure, whatever it might be. So I suppose, Robin, the $64,000 question is why monogamy emerged? What was the advantage for the human species? And in the book, you consider some of the, the front runners as an explanation for that. 
In a sense, monogamy, or at least pair bondedness, rather than monogamy per se, is a really a big problem in evolutionary terms. You know, why why aren't our mating systems just simple and promiscuous like uh, you know many mammals are? The general view seems to be that there are kind of well maybe three major reasons for pair bonding to have arisen. Whether this is, and there's a, an interesting question here as to whether pair bonding relationships are created by one sex locking themselves like a limpet onto the other sex and the other sex just accepts whatever it gets as it were, or whether it's, it's a mutual arrangement, a mutual falling in love as it were. But those three key evolutionary explanations are either that biparental care is required uh, and this is a cost of having a very big brain. When you have a big brain like ours it's hugely expensive to rear offspring. You need both parents to work at it to make it uh, sort of function at all. So this is the the, the so-called dog model? This is exactly what happens uh, in for example your family uh, friendly dog Group. So all the, the, the canids, the dog family, are universally monogamous. They have a u- almost unique parenting system whereby the male goes out and gets the, the food and brings it back to the female and the pups. And of course, it, he brings it back as in his stomach, regurgitates it, and it's beautifully prepared weaning food, and it all uh, works absolutely like magic. And of course, that means the bitch can have very large numbers of of offspring at a time, so most of the dog family tend to have sort of anything between eight and twelve pups at a time. So that's that's one possibility. The, the second possibility is that the females need males for protection against predators, and that of course puts a strong onus really on the male to be interested in protecting the female because uh, you know he's got as much at stake in many ways as the, the female has if either the female or their offspring are caught by predators and, and, and killed. So that's the predator model. And the third model is really the um, equivalent, but the predators in this case are now other members of your own species. So this has sometimes been known as the hired gun hypothesis where females are so subjected to harassment and stress and the risk of infanticide, and this is particularly true of primates in general, infanticide by males is a particular problem for them, uh, that the female needs basically a protector to keep other males at bay. And so what she does is lock on to another male. This is what happens in gorillas, for example. She locks on to another male and he provides a sort of functions really, I suppose, as the sumo wrestler who keeps everybody else away. And the bigger the thug you can find, the better. So really, the, the, the whole book in many ways is a kind of lead up to trying to figure out which of these three possible explanations is the right one. And the last chapter is where that all happens. Robin Dunbar. The Science of Love and Betrayal is available from April 2012 in paperback. For more information on it, as well as Robin's other books, go to faber.co.uk. That's all for this edition of the Faber Podcast, but next month I'm delighted to say my guests will be a brace of Australian novelists, Elliot Perlman and Peter Carey. I hope you can join me then. Until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.